If you would please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're just going to read the first five verses of this chapter. And as we've been coming up to this chapter, Paul has been on the theme of honor several times in the book. We've had several sermons on the necessity of honoring one another in various ways. Uh, he's, He's explained what a major role it plays inside the church, even going so far as to talk about the necessity of providing financially for widows and elders who are serving the church, and that that provision financially is part of the honor that he's speaking of. So honor is not just a uh, a feeling, but it works its way out in the church in these very tangible, t- tangible, practical ways, right? And it's a pretty simple concept, <clears throat> uh, but today he takes it even further with the requirement for slaves to honor their masters. So it's one thing for him to keep hammering on honor, to keep coming back to it in different places in the church. It's another thing then to begin to speak of it outside the church in our daily lives where we're interacting oftentimes with non-Christians, right? That can be a hard thing to stomach as Christians. That can be a hard thing to swallow, Um Now, it's hard in the home. It's hard for children to honor their fathers and their mothers, right? Because why? Well, because children are sinners, and they don't want to honor their mother and their father, even though that's God's will and God's command. They want to seek their own desires, right? But the other reason that it's hard is because the mothers and the fathers are sinners, right? And so the children have a hard time honoring their mother and their father because their mother and their father don't really deserve it. Now, as much as that is true in the nuclear family, you you and your parents and your children, it's also true in the church. And so... Paul spoke about how to deal with sin in the elders, even as he was talking about the necessity of honoring them, right? So he doesn't deny that there is sin and that this affects the the challenge of honoring uh, one another in in the ways that are set apart according to their office, according to their work, according to their position that they've been placed in in our lives. But instead, he deals with that sin while still calling us to give that honor that is due. So Paul is constantly practical in his teaching. And he then uh, goes on to require slaves to honor their masters. It would be one thing if Paul could limit his practicality to the home, 
or if Paul could limit his practicality to the church and the home. But Paul always seems intent on going that one step further and saying, actually, there's no part of your life where I'm not going to be practical with what this means. And so this can be somewhat hard. And he goes even further in our passage this morning, not just saying, here's another practical outworking, and it's outside the church and the home. He then turns to Timothy, and he requires Timothy and other pastors to be practical as well in the same way. It's not enough that Paul begins to talk about how you're supposed to interact with your masters outside in the world. But then he turns around and he says, also, Timothy, don't you dare ignore this. You have to say the same things. Now, that's a that's a theme that he's also returned to several times, telling Timothy that he needs to say these things, particularly at those points where he knows that we're not going to want to hear them, where he knows that the pastor isn't really going to want to preach them. Paul even gets to be quite, what I would call, intolerant of those who refuse to acknowledge the doctrine that conforms to godliness. In other words, theological teaching that works out into your practical life. Those who, those who give theological teaching but that doesn't conform to godliness, that doesn't work its way out in this kind of practical, Paul is absolutely intolerant of that in our passage. So let's read these five verses together. Please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 5. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are to honor those who are masters over us. Okay, how many of you have masters? How many of you are slaves? I don't know why I'm getting hands up for that one. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, you can, you can make the, you can make the connection to masters because what is, what is a master? Someone who tells you what? 
what to do, right? And who has the ability to enforce that, right? And so I guess if you say you have a master, then I guess you would have to say you are a slave in a sense. But let's go back to who Paul is actually talking about in this context. He was talking about literal masters and literal slaves, right? Now this is hard, and if we're gonna, if we're gonna keep Paul's command, preach and teach these principles, we're gonna have to not brush over this real easily, right? Paul says, to the slaves, all who are under yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now today, as I've said, we, we may have masters of various sorts. Your school teacher might be your master. Uh, as a matter of fact, for a long time, they were called masters, not just of their, uh, their field. You might have a master's in biology or any, any topic, any subject, right? But your school master was the one who was in charge of teaching you and of disciplining you in education. And so Augustine uh, speaks of the beatings that he got in his education for not getting his recitation correct. So he had to memorize things and then recite them, and if he recited them wrong or if he didn't remember his lesson, then they would beat him. And we're not talking about the, uh, the, uh, the old rap-on-the-knuckles thing that we have memory, sort of cultural memory of in the uh, in the New England schools or in the in the one room schoolhouses out in the country in America, right? We're talking about beatings. Now, this still happens today. In some cultures, there is a, a very similar treatment to or, or, or a parallel to that sort of thinking about education and about discipline. Notably, Koreans are still this way. They will uh, hire masters for their kids, their tutors that are given full and complete charge over the children and are allowed to beat them for not making the progress necessary. And so we may think in America, oh, well, how brutal. How far out. <laughs> How odd. Um, but my point in, in connecting this to education is that there have always been masters. And at the time of Paul, there were many, many people who were slaves in the literal sense that had masters who their masters were responsible to provide for them, and then they were responsible to 
give all of their service to their master. And in fact, Jesus speaks of the relationship between the master and the servant and says that the master, this is, this is him, uh, appealing to that relationship and understanding how it works when he says, the master, after the servant has spent all day working, the master comes in and doesn't say, oh, how hard you've worked. Sit down and let me serve you. After the servants, after the slaves have worked hard all day, the master comes in and says, now keep working, give me my food. And after that, you may go and eat. And that's just understood to be the way that it worked by Jesus. So much so that in his culture, he could just say, hey, you know how this works, right? That's how the the master-servant, the master-slave relationship works. And so it is with us and parents, right? You work hard all day at school, and you come home, and your parents say, Now set the table. And you think to yourself, haven't I worked hard all day? Don't I deserve a nice break now? And then afterwards they say, now clear the table. Now vacuum. Now wash the dishes. Now make your bed. Now vacuum the floor. Right? And we think, well, I guess I just exist to do my parents' work for them. And we think nothing of the the honor that Paul is speaking of here, the necessity of honoring our masters, right? This flows out of a fundamental thing that we see in the Ten Commandments. So you go back to the Old Testament and you see this requirement that children are to obey, that children are to honor their father and their mother so that they may live long in the land the Lord their God is giving them, right? Go back to the Ten Commandments and you see this kind of honor being required in the parent-child relationship. Paul just is taking one of those fundamental things about the way the world works and he's just applying it into the church and then into your personal life in a way that there's no avoiding the necessity of properly understanding Authority and, and servant relationships. Okay? We, we cannot make it through this text without learning that this applies, this, this necessity of honoring, okay, applies to every area of our life, that there's no place in our life where everybody is totally equal. In this, in this, in this sense of honor. Okay? This, in spite of the fact that we read in the New Testament that there is no longer any slave nor free. Right? Male nor female. Jew nor Greek. That these distinctions are under Christ done away with, and yet here Paul is and he's saying, actually, there is still an honor that is due to those who are in authority. And what does he base that in? Well, as worthy 
of all honor. They're to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, are they worthy of all honor? There's a classic discussion of, you know, what, what to do when, as a, as a wife, how you are supposed to live with your husband in an appropriate, honoring way when he is a dishonorable man. Right? We could have the same conversation about children and their parents, and in fact, we often do, because Many, many fathers and mothers are dishonorable in how they are behaving, and yet, and many, many masters are dishonorable in how they behave, in, even in how they treat their slaves. And yet, Paul goes on and says, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. <clears throat> So why are we to honor them? Well, Paul makes it really practical here. He doesn't actually go back into the uh, into the 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 honor that God the Father has due to him that we see in the way that the Son honors his Father here on earth. He just he just goes to this really he just goes to this really simple appeal to a to a practical reason for why you need to do this. So he's being really practical in what it means for your life. And then he says, and here's some really simple practical reasons for why you should do this. The first is that if they're not believers, or if there are others who are watching who are not believers, then it's so the name of God won't be spoken against. What is what does it mean for the name of God to be spoken against? Several weeks ago, I talked about how uh, hypocrisy in the church leads to people in the in the wider culture refusing to come to church and then speaking against God, speaking against God's people and against what why they exist, why they gather, and so forth. All of that flows into speaking against God, right? That's just one example. What we see here is another way that people would speak against God is when they look at Christians and they see that instead of being people who do what they're told, like their bosses say, hey, uh, I need you to get this done today. And instead of being people who honorably, in an honoring way, listen to their boss and do their work cheerfully as unto the Lord, instead whine and complain like little kids who are being told to clean their room, right? So that, as a non-Christian looks at it, and sees a Christian claiming the name of God as their, as their own, that's what Christian means. It's taking the name of Christ onto yourself. All right? Follower of Christ or little, little Christ. Okay? They say, Christians always are the people who 
don't work hard, or can't be trusted, or and, and you've, you've, you might see any number of things fill in the blank there based on Christians not honoring their masters. There could be all sorts of things that would flow out of that, right? If they recognize that, <clears throat> you know, I've hired so many of, of these people who claim the name of Christ, and they're the ones that give me the least honor and respect as their boss. They're the ones who always think that they have a right to question what I've told them to do, that always make a point of showing how they're smarter than me, who always have uh, an attitude of superiority. To me, the boss. And this isn't, this isn't anything hard. This is, this is just, this is just work. You, you do the landscaping that I told you to do the way I told you to do it because I own the company. Or you do the, you do the electrical wiring the way I said to do it because I'm the owner of the company, because I'm your boss, because this is the way we do it. And you don't say that you've got a better way. You don't, you don't say that you're so smart that you don't have to honor me. You don't do it my way, but with the attitude of, well, this is stupid, but I guess since you're making me, I guess I'll do it. Right? Now, every job has our way that we can do that, that we can respond that way. And those who have gone to private Christian schools or who have been homeschooled are often grown up too soon in their pride. In thinking that they have, uh, that, that, that they have received so much knowledge that they are beyond the need to honor their masters. Right? Now, is it possible for a servant to be wiser than his master? Is it possible for a servant to know more than his master? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Think about Joseph. Joseph was uh, a slave sold by his brothers to travelers who then sold him to the Egyptians, right? And he ended up in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar was doing okay before Joseph got there. But after Joseph got there, what happened to Potiphar's life? It got better and better and better because Joseph was frankly better at managing Potiphar's house than Potiphar was. Right? And yet, do you see any uh, superiority of attitude in Joseph's behavior towards his master? No, quite the opposite. What you see is him saying to Potiphar's wife, how could I do this to my master? How, how could I go against him? How could I dishonor him and God? Right? So there's all sorts of opportunity that Joseph has to feel superior and yet, what you, the only places where you see him addressing that, it's making a point of protecting the honor of his master. Move forward. Same thing happens in the jail, right? Move forward. Same thing happens with Pharaoh himself. The master of the land, Pharaoh, doesn't have the foggiest clue what his very important dream means. 
But Joseph does, by God's grace, understand the dream. God reveals it to him. And so, Pharaoh puts him right underneath himself. Now, if we thought that the wisest person in the land should be the king, then Joseph should be Pharaoh, right? But that's not even a thought that crosses Joseph's mind. We think that everything in the United States is based on uh, merit, that we're a meritocracy, right? That, that whoever is the best rises to the top. Now, this flows, in a sense, from our old Protestant work ethic, that those who work hard are honored with blessing that God has made the world to work this way, and it's true. And yet, it doesn't mean the kinds of things that, the, that we have twisted it into meaning today, which is that, therefore, you end up at the very top if you're the best person in your organization. Not true. Obviously not true. It also not true that you deserve to be the top person. And that it's only the, it's only the, uh, the man keeping you down if you haven't been put into a position above your boss who you're smarter than. Or who you're wiser than. Or who you're more holy than. Or who you're more disciplined than. Or you pick whatever the things are that you're, that you're superior to your boss in, right? And those are, of course, the things that we focus on. But what Paul does here is he says, slaves are to honor their masters, they're to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So this is something that we, as Christians, have to work on with our children. We have to teach them that just because they know something that other people don't doesn't mean that they are supposed to treat them with disrespect and dishonor or to look down on them. And so much of our attitude is what comes out in our children, right? We see this uh, over and over again. And it's painful to see. At least it's painful to me. How many times are there things that we do that would give people occasion to speak against God? or to speak against the doctrine that we have claimed. And so we speak about the necessity of honoring authority, right? And then, the moment that you, in your position of authority, act in any sort of sinful, abusive way, what you have done is you have given the whole world, the the, the broader you have declared the necessity of honoring authority, the broader the the doctrine of God is spoken against the moment that you abuse that position of authority. Does that make sense? 
The same is true of slaves who have been commanded to do something, who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ, and who then do not honor those who are in authority over them. So the moment that you speak disrespectfully to your teacher, or even in a way that is just lacking honor, the moment that you speak to your mother in a way that does not honor her, you're bringing dishonor to the name of God and to the doctrine that he has given to his people. And this is why... Well, wait, there's a second reason that that Paul gives this. If they are Christians... So all this is with regard to the what the non-Christian sees as you live your life. But then he says, and if they are Christians, then you, then, then you have even more of a reason to live in honor of them. Which, of course, we would say, no. If they are Christians, then they ought to know that there's no longer any slave nor free that there's no longer any male nor female, that there's no longer any master and slave, and, 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 and they, ought to, they ought to treat me as a total equal. Or we might say, as the happens with husbands and wives all the time, you know, we, you, you look at your wife and you see her sin and you point out her sin, and she looks at you and she points out your sin, right? And neither one of you want to look at yourselves and see your own sin. So this is the same thing that masters and slaves are able to do, right? The master can look at the slave and be like, you're not honoring me. And the slave can look at the master and be like, you're mistreating me. You're not doing what you're, you're not supposed, you're not supposed to act that way as a master. And what he does is he emphasizes the necessity, especially those who have masters that are believers, must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, because they're your brothers, and you must serve them all the more because they who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. And so then Paul insists that this must be taught and urged, preached. And it's not just this, but it's it's this sort of thing. It's this sort of application. The practical but unpopular thing, like slaves submitting to and honoring their masters. Now, in contrast to this, there are those who make a big show out of demonstrating how the Bible doesn't actually require us to do those uncomfortable or unpopular things. Right? And you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and you you see Satan And Satan looks at Eve and he says to Eve, what? He he immediately goes to God's word, right? 
Has God truly said? And then he perverts and twists what God has actually said, right? In order to bring about sin on the part of Eve. And so it is today that there are those who go immediately to the word of God and say, has God truly said? that slaves must submit to their masters. Has God truly said that children must honor their fathers and their mothers? Has God truly said? And then, having asked the question, they begin to dive deep into the meanings of words, right? and into contexts, and, and so on and so forth. Now, nobody is as big a fan of studying God's Word and of being careful with understanding the meanings of the words as Paul is. Right? You remember what he says at the end of one of his letters, make sure you bring the scrolls. What? Why? Well, because Paul studies and you see the you see the careful reasoning and the and the careful uh, arguing that he does about words in all of his letters. So when he gets to this, and he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, that does not agree with sound words comes before him saying that there are those that have an interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Sound words exist and must be understood and known if we're to make sense of what Paul's meaning is when he says that there are those who love controversial questions and disputes about words. What we want to do is we want to turn it into, well, anytime that we're talking about the meanings of words, anytime we're diving deep into theology or doctrine, that that divides, that that's, that that's loving disputes about words. But Paul, that's why I say nobody was as big a fan as Paul was of careful reasoning and arguing using words, right? So he starts with that they are not agreeing. They are advocating a different doctrine than the sound words. So there's sound words and true doctrine, right? And that doctrine are, and those words are those of our Lord Jesus Christ, number one. And number two, they are the words and commands and doctrines that conform with godliness. So, he's just gotten done describing in this context what godliness means. It's how you are to relate to those who are in authority over you, regardless of whether they're non-Christians or Christians. Okay? So, one of the places that, that, we, that we see... Um, dishonor is when 
Christian children, for the first time, are under somebody who is not a Christian. Okay? It's one of the, it's one of the places where all of a sudden, what they've been taught, what they have learned, comes, comes real in their life. That first time that they are placed under a, an authority that isn't Christian. Sometimes this happens when they uh, get their first job. Other times it happens when they go to college and, and are under a professor that is advocating something false. Okay. Sometimes it happens when they go to public school. But regardless of when it happens, this is, a, this is a temptation that Christians face on a regular basis that you kids face. And so you need to be, you need to see that the, the practical doctrine that Paul is teaching here is that regardless of whether those authorities who are over you are sinning, regardless of whether they are Christians, regardless of what they are doing, you are to be honoring them. That's how it's supposed to work out in your life. The doctrine that conforms to godliness. The doctrine that is of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sound words. But you can imagine the arguments that people have against the necessity of honoring a teacher that's promoting evolution, for example, right? Or you can imagine the arguments that people have about how dishonorable it is that their boss, who claims to be a Christian, is acting in this way. It is dishonorable. And yet, you are to honor them, right? This is why I think, ultimately, I I remember so clearly when one of my philosophy professors said that Christianity was a slave religion. I think I've brought this up before. He's he's reaching back to Nietzsche and others, but... um, It's a a question of, in his mind, simply how to survive when you are under the thumb of somebody else. And it's a a psychological treatment. It's an escape mechanism for you to say, well, you know, like, I'll live underneath that thumb and, and and I'll make a principle of it being good for me to live underneath that thumb. And, of course, the only other option in his mind, is that you break out from underneath any and all authority. And that's why ultimately it requires that God be dead. Because he is the ultimate authority, the one from whom all of this honor that is given into these offices, is re- it's why we're required to honor them, even when they're being dishonorable. And so, many, many people argue against the necessity of us fulfilling these practical commands that Paul gives us. And they say, I believe in what he's teaching. I believe the principle behind what he's saying. 
but it doesn't actually apply anywhere in my life anymore. Right? You, you, you see how this, this is such a nice thing, where you can say that you believe what Paul has said through the Holy Spirit, and yet somehow it just never actually applies to you or to us today. It doesn't actually come to bear on, um, well, that was master-slave relationships, and there are no master-slave relationships. And it doesn't apply to the, it doesn't apply to the government. It doesn't apply to police officers. It doesn't apply to judges. It doesn't apply, you know, because they've, they've taken that authority on themselves, uh, unjustly. And therefore, I have no necessity of honoring them. Paul doesn't give us any room. He just says, if they're non-Christians, it's so that the word of God isn't spoken against, so that God isn't spoken If they're Christians, it's because you love them. It's because your brother is benefiting. And how many times are we just worried about whether it's benefiting us? So many... So many places where we make a big show out of believing the Bible but not having it practically mean anything for us. That it doesn't actually require us to do those uncomfortable or unpopular things. In fact, there are many pastors who make a big show out of getting doctrine just so but never bringing that doctrine to any practical application. In fact, there are those who make a principle out of it. Those men who claim that it is, as pastors, it's our, only our job to declare truth, and it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict, by which they justify not preaching in such a way that people will be moved in their spirits, by the words like Jesus and Peter and Paul, right? Now, you certainly cannot, as a pastor, you certainly cannot, as a teacher, you certainly cannot, as a mother or a father with your children, produce a change of heart in those who are listening to you. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate. Only the Holy Spirit can produce. And yet he has given us the work of discipline, the work of teaching, the work of preaching, so that these would be the means that the Holy Spirit uses to convict. Right? And so, it is up to the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work. You cannot produce that of your own power, but you most certainly can preach in such a way that they will never be cut to the quick and that they won't have to decide whether to stone you or ask you on their knees, what must I do to be saved? You see, 
Now, men who make a point of not ever applying the Scripture in a practical way to the hearts of those who are sitting under their preaching, those men are controversialists. That's what Paul is saying. they're, They're not conforming to the doctrine of godliness or the doctrine that conforms to godliness. It doesn't have any practical outworking. Godliness is something that you see in behavior. That's the outworking of the fruit that's in your heart, right? But when was Paul not embroiled in controversy? Some of the men he describes are the ones he's actually currently fighting with in this letter. And he's pointing out that they are the ones that have created the fight. Others of the men that he describes here are simply constantly going further into study that has no benefit except making them feel smart. Does that make sense? So there's... There's those who uh, engage in constant controversy. And then there's those who uh, just like to feel smart. And what he says about those who like to feel smart is that that leads straight into controversy as well. But what do they know? Nothing. They are conceited and they understand nothing. And instead, out of what they produce, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The key is that they are advocating a different doctrine doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ, which is to say the gospel. Now, there's lots of ways that, I mean, you look at the Bible and the whole thing is about the gospel, right? But there are a lot of ways that what you can preach does not agree with the gospel. There are, of course, ways to preach legalism, right? while claiming to be going from the Bible. There are also ways uh, to preach a doctrine that claims to be all about the gospel and yet that denies the power of godliness or the power of the gospel to, to, to bring about change in your life such that you are living a godly life. You understand the, both of those are a denial of the gospel. Both of those disagree with the sound words of Jesus Christ. Both of those are doctrine that doesn't conform to godliness. Certainly legalism is always a temptation. But I think that today one of the bigger dangers is teaching that doesn't insist on the gospel working its way out into Therefore, this is how you must live. This kind of practical application that Paul gives about simple 
your your you know your job. Okay, now here's how you're supposed to interact with your boss. And then he says, Timothy, make sure you teach on these things. And people today are going, no, 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 no. That's all law. We need to give the gospel. And Paul goes, if you don't teach on these things, you are not teaching in a way that conforms to godliness. You're not teaching words that conform to godliness. And so you're just, you are the divisive one at that point. Now, what I just got done saying is all very practical for pastors. But it's also quite practical for churches and church members. Because we cannot be open to the description of these sorts of men and allow such preaching in our pulpits as churches. Preaching that somehow always has truth, always has doctrine, but never actually comes out and applies it. And we cannot sit under such preaching and not be seriously harmed. Because what happens when we sit under such preaching is that we are convinced each week that goes by more and more that doctrine can be separated from godliness. That there is all sorts of embracing of good and true doctrine that need not actually have any application in our life, that need not actually lead to change in our life. You guys know by now how much of a theme I make of the connection between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy meaning godly teaching, and orthopraxy meaning godly practice. Okay? And what Paul does here is he brings those together so closely that there is no, there is no way to separate them. And that's always what I say. You cannot separate them. The moment that we have supposedly godly preaching, where nothing ever false is ever said, and yet it never leads to any orthopraxy, Paul says it's actually not doctrine that's conforming to godliness at that point. And that's why he insists on on Timothy going ahead and telling people about how they're supposed to interact as slaves with their masters. It's not legalism. It's not a focus on the law. It is the outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives as Christians. If you're not a Christian, then yeah, it doesn't make any sense. If you're not a Christian, then yeah, you don't have the power. And yet, this is preaching. The doctrine that conforms to the words of Jesus Christ. Slaves, obey your masters. Let's pray.